This is verse 1, chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. They urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, You have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation. I answered them that it was not the custom of Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make a defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge of his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive." Being at a loss as how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be set until I could send him to Caesar. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned to me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him to you all 
and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner not to indicate charges against him. Okay. Well, let's us pray and ask the Lord to open this up to us and give us something to know, something to take home, something to learn, something to obey. Father in heaven, we thank you for our portion this morning again in this book. We've spent a long time. Lord, we ask that you give us more time. And having paid attention, we ask you to give us more attention to pay attention with And that you'd show us something here that not only is good for us to know, but in a way which benefits your kingdom, encourages us, makes us perhaps understand a bit more what it is you're here to do and how you go about it. Lord, would you give us a piece of your mind and may we look a bit more like you as a result. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, just like uh, the chapters before and after chapter 25, chapter 25 needs more to complete the story. We've been in this stage for a number of weeks now. What we studied last week needed the chapter before that, and it'll help with this chapter to add to last week. But we're not going to be done with Paul's trials. That won't happen until a couple of or three weeks from now. Uh, with 26, we'll be able to resolve some of these things. So we must pay attention not only to the whole, but also to the parts. That's difficult at times when we're stretching the parts out a week at a time. When we gather together, we try to put it back together. Maybe you missed. Uh, Maybe this is all new to you. Maybe you've taught the book of Acts before. But I do believe there's there's something uh, of significant value within this chapter to make a meal of it. We need a meal each Sunday as we gather together. And uh, we'll transition over into the Lord's Supper. Uh, That's another form of a meal. And all before we're dismissed and you go out and get a real meal, chew up, give you vitamins and those things. But this is spiritually speaking. This is the Lord's day. We're the Lord's people in the Lord's house. The Lord's book open in our laps. So Felix is succeeded by Portius Festus. And I know those names don't mean a lot to you unless you're a a historian. If I say Felix, most people say the cat. If I say Festus, you say the Adams family. But these were Roman officials. And this was the way that law worked. Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's on his way up, but not without process. Some of this is due. Some of this is not at all due process. What is taking place at this juncture where Felix is out and Festus is coming in is that the Jews see a crack. Maybe we can, if we couldn't get what we wanted out of Felix, maybe we can get it out of Festus. So they rush to his side as soon as he lands and they lay out their case and he just like the one before him said, it doesn't work like that. You're going to need to come. You're going to need to accuse him. You're going to need to see him face to face and I'll need to watch the whole thing. New sheriff in town, they're going to do it all over again, even though it's been done before. So Festus told the Jews he'd meet them in Caesarea, bring their charges then. It's about eight or ten days later, he arrives in Caesarea, and the next day takes his seat on the tribunal. So where uh, 
Felix drug his feet. Festus seems to be the type of guy who can't sit still. Uh, ordered Paul to be brought in, allowed the Jews to make the charges, and then Luke tells us the same as the other cases. They can't prove any of it. And the, to make it more complicated, you're talking to Greeks about Jewish, not law, but Jewish religion. And the Jews have to figure out, all right, we're going to say that our problem with this man is religious, but we've got to paint it in such a way that it is a political problem as far as Rome goes because if people don't agree. There could be a riot. There could be problems. So you're taking one problem and making it look like another, and it's just not working. They can't prove any of it. Few details are given in this stage probably because Luke sees them unnecessary. It's all the same repetition. And Paul again responds by denying it all and saying, reminding them they can't prove any of it. So then, by the time you get down to verse 10, something strange happens where Festus had said, no, we got to do this the right way. Then it says, willing to do the Jews a favor, he proposes to move the trial from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Something's happened. We're not privy to it, but isn't that always the way it happens? Somebody with the right bribe gets in at the right time, and what you expected to hear, you don't hear now. So he's, instead of full speed ahead, we're going to acquit this man. It's, well, why don't we move it to Jerusalem, which is not in Paul's best interest at all. He was uh, almost killed on the way before the military convoy made that not happen and it could easily happen again look at verse 10 but paul said um i am standing before caesar's tribunal where i ought to be tried the jews have done nothing wrong i appeal to caesar festus when he conferred said to caesar you've appealed to caesar you shall go so it's not going to jerusalem it's going to be tried in caesarea but before he goes to rome there's these few things that take place. The narrative shifts some days later when the king arrives. So you've got uh, Felix is out, Festus is in, that's regarding the governor, but then you've got the king. Now, I know this is difficult to kind of wrap our heads around because this is not the government we're, we're familiar with. And this is occupied territory. So you have an emperor, a, a, a Caesar, and then you've got governors set up in occupied territory. And then you've got some vassals, kings you call them, over uh, big chunks of the map. And wouldn't you think, this is how it, it shouldn't surprise us, if you've got a changing of a guard in a general location, one uh, governor's out and new governor's in, to make sure everybody realizes that this is cool with Rome, you send in the king for a big show and uh, right there on the banks of the Mediterranean or the beaches, rather. And really, most people don't care, but it, it, it's, it's all that's on the news and all that's in the tabloids. This is what's taking place. So he tells Felix um, or tells uh, Agrippa, the king, that Felix had left Paul in prison. And that the Jews came to him as soon as he got there, wanting him condemned. He told them that they'd have to come in per person, present the charges. We already covered all that. 
But then here's the most fascinating point of it all in verse 19. And this is one governor talking to the king. They've been there some days. We don't know if they're there on the beach, the big mansion overlooking. This is Herod's palace, of course. You can't get much better. Rather, they had certain points of dispute. This is not what I expected, Mr. King. What was the dispute? Well, it had to do with their own religion, but here it is. A certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. There's no way that these men don't know that this man was crucified on a Roman cross. Everybody knows that. But to hear that there's this one man preaching and he's got a whole group of people behind him. Jews want him dead. And the basis of the whole contention is that that carpenter who was crucified is alive? That's what they think? Now, we'll come to this later, but in the mind of a Jew, this is blasphemy. In the mind of Rome, this is ridiculous. What do they make of this? What are they supposed to do with it? Uh, do they have something called uh, innocent because uh, by reason of insanity? That, that's probably what they would say about someone who thinks that someone who was dead. And he's not just dead. He's crucified by a, a Roman cross. It's not like he just disappeared and there's no body. Oh, but wait a minute. There's a scandal with the body too. So you can imagine that when this comes up, um, it could probably ruin the first hundred days of a governor's reputation, doesn't it? I, 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 this is nice. We're now in Caesarea, but I got to go back to Jerusalem. And what am I going to do about this man? And what are we going to do about this Jesus that won't go away? So the next day, we're told, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Now, we skipped over the part to where after this is all mentioned, the king says, I want to see this man. And Festus says, you'll see him tomorrow. But notice that. Next day, uh, great pomp, big entrance into the hall where all this is going to take place, all the military's there, the who's who's from the city. Do you like that word pomp? When's the last time you used the word pomp? Maybe it was the word pomp us. It's a derogatory term to someone who takes on airs, uh, pomp they don't deserve. Pomp, uh, hey, we're getting close to graduation season. There's that pomp and circumstance thing that they play for, what, about two hours where everybody <laughs> comes in and sits down, and then another two hours as all the faculty comes in, and then another two hours, on and on and on. It's when people get dressed up, but is it a party like a parade like your team won the cup or, or the, the championship? No. It's not where normal people did something exceptional and everybody says, you know, way to go. This is where people who think they're more important than everyone else dress up and make all the people they think are less important than them look and pay attention. It's for power. It's for show. Uh, everybody's there. And for what reason? To hear this man? It doesn't even seem to make sense. But as we read through it, 
Paul is introduced as the man the whole Jewish people want dead, but a man who no one can find anything wrong with, as far as Rome's concerned. And since he's appealed to Caesar, this man, the new governor, thinks it'd be best if they all gather so that he'll have something to write when he sends him to Caesar, because it wouldn't make sense to send him to Caesar with nothing written against him. You almost want to laugh at this. I mean, this is three deep, right? You had the tribune who almost beat him. That was a mistake. But then he found no fault in him and sent him to Felix. And then Felix says, well, I can't find anything wrong with him. So Felix is replaced, and now you've got Festus. Festus can't find anything to write about him, so he's going to let the king figure it out because, hey, he's appealed to Caesar. We've got to send him to Caesar, but we don't want to waste Caesar's time. He's going to want to know what the problem is, and we don't have anything to write about him. It, it almost sounds like, I don't know, a bunch of politicians talking in beautiful words for long extended periods of time and having said absolutely nothing. Now that sounds familiar, but that's the situation they find themselves in. So this is not a trial. Paul had, Paul had already appealed to Caesar. Agrippa is passed over as far as jurisdiction. He's going straight to the top. This is for entertainment. It's to show off in front of the dignitaries, glitter, glamour, glory. It's all for show. So let's hit the pause button and try to figure out what's really going on here and what do we take home with us. Who is Agrippa? That'd be a good question. Well, he's Agrippa II or Agrippa II. He was the last of the Herodian dynasty. Do you remember Herod? Any child who's ever come to church even two weeks out of the year, Christmas and Easter, knows the word or name Herod. Bad guy, right? Well, there was a Herodian dynasty. The great-grandfather, Herod the Great, is the one who built Caesarea. Why it was named that. Uh, it was Herod the Great who, when he heard from some wise men that there may be a king born to the Jews, he had all the two-year-old baby boys killed to make sure there's no chance of that. That would be the original great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who also built Herod's temple, the temple they're so proud about. And then there's the grand-uncle, who had murdered John the Baptist after a foolish promise to a girl who danced at his party. He was so enamored, he said, I'll give you anything you want up to the half of my kingdom. Her mother whispered in his ear, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And because everybody's watching, he has to do it, even though he didn't want to do it, but he did it. And then there's this man, Agrippa II's father, Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa. He executed James, one of the disciples. And when he found out how the Jews appreciated that, he went after Peter. And we read through some of that in Acts already. We also read the part, this would have been 16 years earlier in Acts chapter 12. I think we mentioned it last week. That in his shiny suit in front of everyone, and his son, and Bernice, and Drusilla, who would have just been a baby at that point, were probably all there as well when he doubled over having been eaten inside by worms and died in front of everybody, which is the point. Every one of those men came to a disgrace or an untimely end, as the record 
shows. So this little trip down memory lane is just to paint the mind or paint in your mind the picture. What would a man part of the Herodian dynasty think, feel, or react at the sound of this man who's attached to all his enemies? I mean, he'd already killed anybody Jesus would have grown up with, killed his cousin, killed one of his disciples, was after another, and then watched his father die. Was Paul there or not? I'm not sure. In fact, we really don't know much about Agrippa and Paul's relationship, but we know that Jesus of Nazareth and Herod's family are interwoven and uh, very dramatically. So there's a lot going on here that we could just read right over as Americans uh, 2,000 years and how many cultures away. We have to remind ourselves of this. So uh, if that's Herod Agrippa, then who is Bernice? Well, we mentioned her. It's Agrippa's sister. It's also Drusilla's sister from last week. That was... Felix's very young wife. Bernice was married to her uncle to begin with. And bad part is that was the better marriage. Uh, she moved in with her brother. That didn't look good, so she married someone else. That didn't last, so she moved back in. Jewish and Roman history historians agree that they were living in unspeakable sin. Uh, so that's who's front and center. That's what all the pomp is about. And then you've got the host over here. This is the new governor. We really don't get much out of him. And then probably the best way to paint this picture, if it was for film, is to use Voltaire's description of Paul. That ugly little Jew. They bring into the middle here. And we, we read the extra-biblical account of his, his description, didn't we? Short, monobrow, bald head, bowed legs, beaked nose, scratchy voice, but with the face of an angel. Not the appearance, but kind of the visage. And he's standing there in front of all this show of power and wealth and prestige you couldn't get any more dramatic. He doesn't need an introduction, but he's standing there basically listening as these people talk about how they have nothing to write the Caesar about regarding him, which is ridiculous. Verse 26, I have nothing definite to write. Therefore, I have brought him before you all. So that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. Any of you feel sorry for this poor governor who's a new broom? He's trying to sweep well. He has nothing to write to Caesar. Nothing to write because he's impugned himself, same as everyone else. They've taken bribes. That's why Paul's there two years later, or he'd been gone long ago and probably dead. But they can't speak freely because they haven't told the truth. Everybody knows it, but they keep up the show. So the tribune found no fault. Felix found no fault. We've got Festus finding no fault. 
Maybe they should write about the fact that three of his governing officials find no fault, but they've all taken bribes, so you worry about it, Caesar. Well, they can't write that. Be cool, though, wouldn't it? Ever find yourself in a situation where you just can't win? It looks like everything's stacked against you. Now, we like to feel this way. People write songs about it. Um, Usually it's uh, quite upbeat. You like go chop down trees or lift weights when you listen to that kind of music. Um, But from time to time, we we feel that way, don't we? It's kind of like... Here's the little guy, and then here's the system, and the system isn't fair, and it's just, it's just tough. Um, maybe this is a horrible way to try to get into the situation where we find Paul, which, which is probably the epitome of the worst of this type of thing. But I was thinking earlier, and I, I, I like to think through these messages and figure out really good illustrations for y'all to like hang on talk about at lunch. I was kind of coming up dry on this. There's no way to put myself in Paul's shoes. And then it came to me. I know a couple. They don't live far from here. They've got four kids and they got one on the way. It's a coincidence, okay? And uh, because of the pregnancy, there's a lot of doctor visits, right? You've got to work those in your schedule. And then as a result of the doctor's visits, there's different things prescribed. There's different types of care. It's not at all like they were familiar with, with you know, the other children because it's been a while. And you, the, the whole dance you do with this, which requires a college degree, not just a class, a degree, uh, you've got your health provider You've got your insurance, and then you've got this vast gulf between the two, right? So you get a bill, and you look at it and go, man. And then you wait on the EOB, Estimate of Benefits, from the insurance provider, and you hope that they match up. Same date, same procedure, same doctor, same figures and then you look down at the bottom window this is what you may owe after the insurance has paid what they have paid according to the agreement that you've paid premiums for any of you seen this movie <laughs> but then because of one weird little thing on one of the pieces of paper that says not north carolina but south carolina Nothing is covered because in South Carolina, that family has no coverage. A clerical error. So what do you do about it? Oh, it's just a clerical error. We'll get it fixed. Where's the number? Call them up. About eight or ten days later, you're still on hold. Because you've tried every mathematical combination to get to a real person. And there is none. That's how much they care about you. Now, the commercial on TV that talks about all that stuff, they're walking in the park. You know, they're, they're playing with a dog. They love life because they're so well taken care of. But 
Somebody makes a mistake and you just pay for it all yourself because you can't get anyone to answer the phone. Sometimes you just can't win, right? That's just an everyday problem that all you are laughing about because everybody goes through it. But to spend two years in prison watching one government official after another pretend one thing, say another thing, act another way. How do you as a Christian who knows the God of the universe put up with this game? And what we're talking about is not the church he goes to, but the government he lives under. And he would rather have his day in court, not with his own people who say they know his God, but the pagans. Because at the end of the day, they're actually a little more consistent than the people who say they're God's people. So I'll appeal to Caesar. Y'all can have your process, and I'll just wait it out. That's crazy. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, we're the 25th chapter of Acts. We've been studying it for well over a year. It's Palm Sunday. We saw there that seems to be the inflection point. Is this certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserts to be alive? We're going to have a ball with that next week. But here is a reminder. Maybe this will give us what we need, and then we'll move uh, to communion. If you were to turn all the way back to Acts 1, and this is 8, Acts 1, 8, you may have it memorized. You might have it memorized in King James, so you might want to look at it in ESV so we don't trip over ourselves. If you have it in your memory, I'm going to read it right here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, that's basically the table of contents for this book, and that's how it's happened. It started in Jerusalem, then it went to Judea, then Samaria. Uh, they're now in the uttermost parts of the earth, so to say, in, in Caesar's court or its subcourts. And we're talking about this in where? Fuquay, Verena. That's the uttermost part of the earth. So, this is exactly what Jesus, before he went into the sky, told his disciples they were supposed to do. Go bear witness. That's your job. And I'll give you everything you need to get it done. Now, if we were to skip down to chapter 9, this is regarding Paul. This is a 15th verse of chapter 9, right after the Damascus Road interception the Lord said to him, go, and this, this is not to him, it's to Ananias who's going to help Paul because he's blind. For he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Hadn't got to the king part yet until chapter 25. He'd already carried it to the Gentiles and he'd carried it to the children of Israel, but now he gets his day in the hot sun, the king is in the room. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my, set, my name. We could have done without that. We talked about it a lot when we studied chapter 9. 
it's not all going to be bed of roses. All the days aren't going to be good. Um, you're not going to enjoy yourself the whole time. But then if you were to skip over, let's go to the end of the book of Acts. We'll get here in a few weeks. But I know some of you like to read the end before you're there, right? This is Acts 28, verse 30 and 31. He, that's Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. Where? Rome. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, Felix didn't do what he said he was going to do. Festus didn't do what he said he was going to do. Uh, Lysias didn't do what he said he was going to do and was almost about to do what he wasn't supposed to do. The Jews have been lying and taking oaths. We won't eat anything until this man's dead. No one is treating this man fairly, except for one person who told him what to expect, and it has happened exactly like he told him, all the way to when the emperor, Nero, will execute him as a martyr. Not because he wanted to be a martyr. He didn't seek martyrdom. Martyrdom happened to him while he was being faithful as a witness. What's my point? I don't know where your story starts, what book it would be called, if it's your name. But somewhere in the beginning, and let's just say we'll start the story where you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you understood the gospel as the Bible tells it, rather than someone who might have twisted it the wrong way, you'll understand that that's part of the deal. You are his witness. Your sins are forgiven. Your home is heaven. And that's where you start. And then at the end, we, we, we know what to expect there. Paul wrote extensively on it. People are going to say, so how are the dead raised? Did they come with a body like ours? And he goes on and on. But the Bible tells us what to expect. When this life is over, because our sins are forgiven, they have no claim on us. Death hath no claim on us. We live with the Lord forever in heaven. Amen. But it doesn't mean that you won't have a chapter 25 somewhere in the middle. It doesn't mean that there might not be a day where you wonder if the whole world has lost its mind and cares nothing for what's right but only for themselves. You find yourself caught in the gears of someone else's pomp and circumstance. Don't be distracted by it. You belong to God. He'll have the last word. And all of that will disappear like sand on the seashore or whatever's written in it. What do you do? You keep on keeping on like Paul did. And if there's one other thing we might take out of this, to the best of your ability, do the right thing. Because not many people will. No one in this story did, except for Paul. You can do the right thing. And really, isn't that the first thing we do when we wake up each morning? Am I going to do the right thing or am I going to do what I want to do? And we know the difference. 
We know when someone hasn't done the right thing. We know when we haven't done the right thing. It's not complicated. But it is the hardest thing to do in a row consistently. And if you can do it, even remotely consistently, you'll look more like that crucified carpenter who was dead and now is alive. And maybe someone will notice. Maybe they won't want to notice, but maybe they will. And maybe the Lord will use you to see him do his work. But if you find yourself in chapter 25 of your story, you're going to be okay. It won't always be this way. And wherever you're most weak, wherever you've failed the most often, you need to understand that that's where God loves you the most. You say, that's ridiculous. No, that's what you would want to tell yourself. It's not true. If you have children, you know how this works. Whatever's bothering your child, whatever weakens them or hurts them, bothers them, you don't run away from that, do you? No, that's where your heart longs to fix the problem. This fellow didn't leave heaven, die on a cross, to walk off angry every time you make a mistake. He did that because that's the only way to destroy that part of you so that there can be an eternity where you're as perfect as the way he designed you before sin ever entered the picture. I think our good Lord loves Paul as much in chapter 25 as he does in any of the other places. And at a certain point he says, well, I'm done with that. I'm going to bring you home. What looks horrible here on the planet looks wonderful in heaven. Same as the way Jesus died a horrible death in order to win the greatest victories. This is what we celebrate this week, especially next week. But it's the truth. And I thought, you know what? Paul needs some help here. He's alone. You wonder where his church is. There might even be a day where your church fails you. They're made out of humans too. I don't know what's going through his mind, but it seems like a great thing to contemplate while sharing communion together. That's one thing we can do that Jesus told us to do, to remember him and to remember what he did. So that whenever you get to whatever you're doing tomorrow and you're faced with the decision to do the right thing or to just keep on keeping on because it's not the environment you want to be in and it's not the way you like it, it's all right. Yesterday, we took a little piece of stale bread and a little cup of juice that the world would look at as stupid and laugh, but boy, what it represents. The Son of God, who was killed, but he's alive. That's everything. That's all of it. Can't boil it down anymore. If it's not true, we're all in a mess. And, and we're really pitiful at that. That's Paul's wor- words. But if it's true, and it is true, we can't lose. That's something you could say Hosanna about, right? So let's us pray. We'll transition here. I'll give you a, a, a little setup, and we'll get our, our deacons up here after um, a little bit of, of prayer. 
But let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for a, a chapter that gets skipped over a lot. It, it, we don't even understand how these things work or who the players are or what's going on. We just know it's not fair. And Lord, if we live long on this earth, we become acutely aware that really not much of it, if any of it at all, is fair. Lord, we know this world wasn't fair to you either. But it didn't stop you. You came to give us life. And then you came to bring us back to yourself. So, Lord, would you energize us, strengthen us, build us up, motivate us, and spread us out with this stuff so it can be used for good. It changed our lives. It can change others. You're still about the business for which you died and changing lives. Lord, would you bless what we're about to do? And would you be pleased in how we do it? We ask this in your name. Amen.